So uh, here's what's funny is um, my dad told me that's bluegrass or something like that. I don't, I'm not familiar with the music, but uh, he always tries to do like these country things, you know, like, oh, we're going to bring Missouri, you know, Missouri. He lived in the country for one year of his life, okay? He was a city boy every other year except when he was 17 years old. Do not let him fool you. Oh, I drive a tractor. I love oh, Come on, please. No one's buying it. All right. Anyway, see, he left. He usually sits in the front row, but he left. You want to know why? Here's why. is because last service, he for 15 minutes clicked a pin right there, and I went, dude, just because you're not speaking, you don't need the attention right now, okay? <laughs> Cut it out. So anyway, sorry for the family issues that I'm sharing with you guys right now, but uh, we're giving back to God. So uh, if, you, uh, if you're visiting with us, don't feel obligated to give. It's just something we do as part of our worship. So uh, part of um, what we do around here is we do Christmas traditions, and, and one of which is Thursday nights, and we had a great couple weeks, and the last week is coming up, and we're going to have uh, snow and in and out and all that kind of good stuff. And then, of course, next weekend we have the big uh, tradition, which is Christmas Eve services, and we have, uh, I think, six of those that you can be at, all six if you want. It would be fantastic. And uh, I'll be there. You should be there. And so Six services is great, but also um, as families, we have traditions. You probably have some that you have in your family. We have some. I don't know where they came from. One was uh, my whole life growing up in Christmas Eve, we would have clam chowder. I don't know why. Well, that's not even Christmassy, but we'd have clam chowder. And uh, as my sister and I would wait for my parents to get home because we would do Christmas Eve services, uh, we would wait for our parents to, to finish up. We would watch a movie. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's called Home Alone. Oh, it's a good movie. That is such a good movie. Home Alone um, was and probably is my favorite Christmas movie. I know every line from Home Alone. Um, I can probably probably tell uh, tell you every scene. And uh, and Home Alone is 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 funny because as I was growing up, I would watch Home Alone and I would see it from the perspective of the child, right? You watch it and you think, Kevin, you are living the life right now. I can only imagine, like, look, I want my parents to disappear as well. Just a little bit, just for like a little while, not forever, but just to disappear so you can run havoc in the house and you can do whatever you want to do. But as I've gotten older and I've become a parent myself, I have gone from watching it as a child to watching it as a parent. And as I watch this movie, my first thought is, how irresponsible are these parents? How do you get on a plane to fly to another country and forget your kid at home. Look, that is, all right, I haven't lost a child at church. Or I came really close this week at, at December nights, but we found him. But, <laughs> but I, will, I will admit that this week we did have a child escape from our house. Here's what happened, is Ezra, our three-year-old, um, he decided while mom was getting ready to come to December nights, and we, we, they had their clothes all fancy, they were going to do their Christmas pictures from the tree with Santa, and so mom went to go pack up the bag, and they were getting ready to leave to come here. And as they were getting ready, Ezra decided that he would sneak out of the house, he went to the side of the house where he found a hose that happened to be on, and he started spraying everything in sight, including the dirt in which he made a mud puddle that he rolled in. And Amy didn't realize he was out of the house until she got uh, a knock on the door from the next door neighbor who said, hey, did you know that your kid's on the side of the house rolling in mud? She's like, oh, let me guess, Ezra, right? Ezra, yeah. So she goes, she, she goes to grab Ezra and he sees and he just drenches her with the hose. 
And um, I got a phone call from my wife who was on her way, and I was wondering why she was running late, because we were supposed to do pictures. And, and the first thing she says is, you will not believe what your son did. <laughs> you know that it's a problem when it's your son. It's no longer our son. This is your kid. And so they made it, and um, he thought it was hilarious, and I, I did as well, but I would never tell her that. And so... Um, the second thing that I realize about Home Alone is, one, irresponsible parents. Two, um, it just makes me anxious thinking about it. There is a moment in which the mom is flying on the airplane, and she's trying to figure out, okay, what did I forget? I know I forgot something. And she goes, ah, I, I, forgot, I forgot to close the garage door. And he goes, mm, that's it, honey. Yeah, that's it. And she goes, no, it's something else. And it's like, come on, right? That moment, when I place myself in that scenario, I just think, how terrifying would that be? I get anxious just thinking about it. And anxiety is something that I do really well. I have two strong emotions that I'm really good at, uh, anger and anxiety. And when I think about leaving my kids home alone and going to a foreign country, that just produces a lot of anxiety. And I know that I'm not the only one who has anxiety issues because as I've, um, as I've looked at all the products that, be, that are being offered this Christmas, there are so many that are promising one thing, peace of mind. There are tons of products on the market that are offering people peace of mind, which means that you are like me. You're anxious. You can't find peace in your life, no matter how hard you try now. I will continue to try to find peace because I buy every gadget that promises me peace. Now, here's what I bought recently. Um, one of the things that I got is um, a baby monitor, but I, I recall um, back in the day when maybe I was a baby or, or a little bit, they had baby monitors. They were more like walkie-talkies, though, let's be honest, in which you could sort of hear if the baby was in the other room and was having, uh, having a hard time. And then we progressed, and we eventually got to the baby video monitor in which you can watch your child from work, which I thought was fantastic. I can do that. That's great. But now they have something even better. What I got is called the Owlette. And it is a sock that you put on your newborn child, and it has an infrared light that shoots into their foot, and you can read their oxygen level and heart rate from your phone. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this product. <laughs> I ordered it immediately. That is, I, I love it. I can lay in bed and go, oh, I wonder how the baby is. I know exactly how the baby is right now doing well, I see. You know, like, it just it, it makes me so happy. And I, this is not just one thing. I have so many things in my life that are like this. I, I research for months what's going to be the safest car for my family. I have an alarm system in my house because obviously we live in a dangerous neighborhood around here, right? This is terrifying. And so when the alarm company came over, they said, okay, well, here's what I would recommend. And I go, thanks for the recommendation. Everything. I want it all. Give it all to me. You know, I want every window, every door, motion sensor. I want everything because I'm going to make sure that we're safe. Now, you are probably like me, and you can think of some products that you have purchased that you think are going to give you some kind of peace of mind. You subscribe to the cloud because you need your 20,000 pictures safe, you know, or you have the extended warranty for the toaster, or you have whatever it may be, you have purchased things that you believe are going to bring you some kind of peace of mind. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today is now for the last few weeks, we've been talking through some titles that were given to uh, Jesus as the future Messiah in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. 
And so if you don't know the Old Testament, you don't know much about the Bible, let me just give you a really quick overview. So here's the deal is um, there was a guy named Abraham and God comes to Abraham and says, listen, um, you and I, we're going to have this special relationship in which I'm going to reveal certain things to you about me and you stay faithful to me. And I'm going to raise you up into a great nation. And eventually this nation is going to be ruled and run by me. And I'm going to reveal things about me to you. And then you're going to bless the entire world. Great deal. All you got to do is you got to love me, you got to worship me, you got to be faithful, and I'll be faithful to you. Problem is, as we read throughout the Old Testament, um, Israel had a really difficult time being faithful to God. They would worship other gods, they would disobey his orders, they would go and do things they knew explicitly were wrong. And so God, like a good parent, would come along and he would discipline them and go, look, you got to wake up. You, you, got, you can't be doing that. You've got to straighten up. And so he would send other armies to attack them, and he would send different disasters and different things to, to the nation of Israel to try to get their attention, try to get them back in line. Well, eventually it gets so bad in the nation of Israel that the nation divides in two, and it starts crumbling, and it almost disappears. And along the way, there would be these prophets, and God would send them as messengers saying, hey, straighten up. God's going to do something you're not going to like unless you start to listen and along the way, there was this guy named Isaiah, and Isaiah was one of these prophets, and he says, you know, we're in such, a, we're in such, bad, uh, such bad condition right now that we need somebody to come and save us. And so he starts talking about one day God is going to send this future Messiah. It's going to be a leader who's going to bring us back into power, bring us back into prosperity, and is going to save us from this disaster that we're in. And so in Isaiah 9-6, we learn about this future Messiah. Here's what it says. It says, for us to, uh, excuse me, for us, for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he says, this future Messiah, these are some of the titles that he's going to be given. And as they started to think about what this Messiah is going to look like, what came to their mind was someone like King David. And King David was the, the kind of the, the best king of Israel. He brought in the golden era of Israel in which he was a warrior king. He was a political king. He brought prosperity and power. He was able to expand his kingdom. And so when they thought of the Messiah, they thought he's got to be like King David except greater. And so as they were looking for this Messiah, one day, about Four or five hundred years later, and there's about 400 years of silence there, they start hearing rumors. Now, by this time, they've been taken over a few times. They've been in slavery. Now they're under Roman rule. But this kid comes along, and people start to talk about him. You know, this lady's claiming to be a virgin, and she's having a child, which, ah, come on, let's be real here. But then there's these guys, and they're coming from far off, and they seem pretty smart, and they're saying that he's here. And then there's angels that are showing up to other people, and there's some stirring happening that this might be the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And in fact, as you fast forward, Jesus even claims to be this Messiah. Not only is he given the title, but he claims it for himself. He says, yeah, I am the one that you have been waiting for. I am the one who uh, is going to bring the kingdom back to power. Problem is, what they expected versus the reality was way off. They expected a, a powerful leader. They expected someone to come and uh, to defeat their enemies, to bring power back to Israel, for them to, to be prosperous once again, for them to be a powerful nation. And yet, that didn't happen at all. And this whole like peace thing where one of his titles was Prince of Peace, he's supposed to bring peace. And yet there was no peace when Jesus arrived. When Jesus arrived, there was no peace in his own life because as we know, he's crucified. There's no peace in his followers' lives because most of them were killed as well. There's no peace in Is for Israel because Rome still is there, uh, still uh, um, uh, ruled over them. 
And in fact, in the 2,000 years since Jesus, we haven't seen any peace either. If you look at the last 2,000 years of human history, it has been full of wars and disasters. The last century was the bloodiest century in human history, the most people killed. So if we were to look at this through the lens of the scripture of Isaiah, we can start to understand why people rejected him as the Messiah. He seems like kind of a failure if he's supposed to bring in this kingdom and he's supposed to bring in peace. And yet, I think that either we, have, we either have to conclude that Jesus is a failure or there was something bigger happening there. That he had a bigger picture. That there was another type of kingdom and another type of peace that he was talking about. So from day one, Jesus actually claimed this. And the first thing that he preached, and he continued to preach throughout his ministry, is about the kingdom of God. Here's what he says. Right before he goes and calls his disciples in Mark 1, 15, he says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so he came, and he, came that, he claimed that he was bringing in a kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is kind of deep theological water. It can get really complex and kind of confusing. So let me see if I can boil it down to something really simple. The kingdom of God is where God rules over people's minds and hearts, and they willfully submit to him. It's where God's will is done. It's where people say, you know what? I don't want to live for me. I want to live for you. Whatever you want for my life, whatever you want for the world, that's what I want too. And so when we see in the Lord's Prayer, we see that we are supposed to pray that um, it's not our will, but his will. It's not our kingdom, but his kingdom being built. And so to be a citizen in God's kingdom means to willfully submit to being a citizen in God's kingdom and not our own. And he says that as people begin to do this, the result is going to be peace in the world. What kind of peace is he talking about? Well, I'll tell you what he's not talking about first. He says in Matthew 24, 6, and he's speaking about kind of the end of human history. He says, it's not going to be a ceasing of wars and violence or even natural disaster. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So he says, you know, because I came and I'm bringing this kingdom, this kingdom of God, don't think that there's going to be more peace. In fact, there's probably going to be less peace when it comes to violence and it comes to natural disasters. Now, is that because of Christians? No, no, no. Because he also tells us that we, as believers, should be peacemakers. And so we should be people who are trying to bring peace into our lives and into the lives of people around us. And yet, as we do that, and as we pursue that, we may see peace in our lives and we may see peace in our families and our communities, but we are not going to ultimately see peace in the world. And so he says that it's going to be something else. Well, maybe it's a state of mind. We look at Eastern religions, and maybe he's talking something like that, where it's this nirvana, the state of bliss. Maybe that's the peace that he's talking about, this inner peace. Well, he says in Luke 12, uh, 49, he says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. So he's painting this picture of fire raining down from heaven and it's judgment on people where he is going to come and he's either going to bless people or he's going to judge them. Now, this is not like this like flowery hippie. Oh, Jesus, he's so great. Let's hug it out. You know, like this is the Jesus that we don't like to think about because he says he's going to bring judgment onto, uh, uh, into the world. And he continues on the next verse. He says, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? And all of us would say, yeah, I kind of thought so. Like, I thought that was the deal, right? Like, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You remember the Christmas story? I thought that was kind of the thing. No? He says, 
No, I actually came to bring division. You came to bring division? Well, what does that mean? See, Jesus really is the most divisive figure in human history. He divides the world into two categories. Those who love him and those who hate him. He doesn't really leave space for you to like him. He says, I have made such crazy and audacious claims to be the Messiah, to be God incarnate, that you either think that I am a crazy person, I am a liar, uh, or you think that I actually am the Messiah, that you think that I'm telling the truth. You can't just simply like me. You got to stand on one side. And that's what he's saying. He's like, I came to bring division, to divide the world into two categories of people. And then he finishes the passage with this. He says, and uh, Luke 12, 52, he says, from now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, <clears throat> father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, which we obviously saw that, so that happened. Um, the Bible is true. But he's obviously talking about here is he didn't come to bring relational peace either. He didn't say, like, everybody's just going to get along now. It's all going to be roses from here on out. No, he says, we know what's going to happen is when you start to become a follower of me and the people around you who do not love me, do not follow me, they're going to look at you and go, what a bigot. How intolerant, how superstitious, how naive. How can you believe that? How can you say that? How can you live like that? See, the people whom you may try your hardest to love and care for in your life are going to look at you because of what you stand for and who you follow, and it's going to divide you because your worldviews are now in conflict. He also says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give, you to, give to you as the world gives to you. So he says, I'm going to give you peace, and it's going to be my peace. And we don't really know what that means yet, and, and maybe we'll try to figure that out in a minute. But he says, the world is offering you some sort of peace. Everybody's looking for peace, and the world's going to offer you a, a, a way to get it. And the way that the world gives it is not the same way that I'm going to give you peace. Well, what is the way that the world gives us peace? I think it's really two ways. Um, one, we are, we are told that we can have peace if we are in control. If we can simply control our lives and our surroundings, that we're going to find the peace that we're looking for, right? I fall for it, you fall for it, and it's because it's true to a very small degree, is if I have the safest car on the road, it's going to make me feel like I'm in more control. If I can monitor my baby's heart rate 24-7, not that that does anything, but at least I know, so I feel like I'm in control. If I can monitor my house and I can look at my porch right now and I can, I, I, I feel a little bit more in control. And it's true to just a, a small degree. But we believe that, and we may not say this, but if we make enough money or have enough power and influence and buy the right things, learn enough and do enough that we can somehow control our surroundings, we can control our world. And yet as I get older, I realize how untrue this is. It's just clearly not the case. Is there are so many things in my life that are not under my control. In fact, I could count more things that are under my control than not. Because ultimately, my, my kids' safety and their health, my future, my, my hopes and my dreams, my relationships with other people, most of those things are not under my control. Those can go sideways in a moment's, moment's time, and yet I can do nothing about it. And ultimately, what happens is as we try to control more and more of our life, and I kind of think of it as white-knuckling it, we try to grasp more and more of our life. The things that we use to control ultimately control us. 
The things that we try to use to stay in control of our lives ultimately control us. So think about it. We use money to try to control our circumstances and control the situations of our life. And it doesn't oftentimes work. In fact, it does the opposite. We become a slave to the money. It starts to control us. It becomes the motivating factor for our lives. And you can, you can use any example that you want. You can use power and influence, and we try to be influential and have the right relationships, and ultimately that pursuit ends up controlling our schedules or the stuff that we try to buy. You can be obsessed with trying to acquire something that you think is going to give you control in life, and because you are so obsessed with getting that thing, it becomes the controlling thing in your life. I think there's another side to this is uh, some of us realize that we're not going to be able to find peace through control. And so we just go the entire other direction and we try to find peace through escape or distraction. Is we realize that we can't control it. And so you know what we're going to do? We're going to be totally detached from anything because this world is out of control. And so I'm not going to get it too attached to it. And we see this in our relationships sometimes is we don't want to uh, engage and be emotionally vulnerable in our relationships because we know we can't control that person and what they're going to do to us. And so if we can't be in control, then we're going to be totally detached. We're going to escape. Other times we have moments in which we try to escape from our everyday life or our circumstances. We go on vacations. We just spend hours on YouTube or we binge on Netflix. Why do we do this? Because it gives us just at least a moment where we're distracted and we don't have to think about what's happening in our life. And some of this is really destructive behavior. We end up doing things that um, we know are not good for us, but it will at least give us a temporary distraction from uh, the anxiety that we feel. So for me, um, it's uh, eating. 15, 20 minutes of just pure bliss for me, right? I have had a double-double almost every day this week, which just tells you what kind of week we've had, right? Because I can just sit there, and it's usually, this is, the, this is me, is I drive through, no kids in the car, eating a double-double uh, with fries, light, well done, and a 7-Up, I've been there before, and I just sit there in peace, and I just go, oh, this is, this is the best. You know, this is the best. And as soon as I'm done, I'm like, oh, that was a bad decision. Oh, gosh, this is not good for me. But I just want at least a moment of just where I feel at peace. Others of us we've kind of pursued a lifestyle where we seek pleasures to distract us from what we look at online to what we drink, we smoke, who we hook up with, whatever it may be, we try to find the next thing that's going to bring pleasure and distraction. But what if we don't have to settle for this? What if there is an actual real peace out there, not this momentary peace and especially not one that is destructive to us? What if there is a peace that we can even go through the tough stuff of life and still experience it. So um, if there is peace, and I think all of us can admit that we have, uh, or if there's conflict, I think all of us can admit this because we're all searching for peace, which assumes that there's conflict in our life. I think we have to ask where this conflict comes from. Because there is a conflict within ourselves, an inner conflict in which we struggle with our past mistakes and, and we struggle with our future and our failures and there is an internal struggle that happens within us, but then there's an external struggle as well in which we struggle in our relationships because people have hurt us and they misunderstand. And, and, and so there's an external and an internal struggle, a, a conflict, if you will. And scripture says the reason why you feel that conflict and the reason why you have anxiety and can't find the peace that you're looking for is because there is something that lives within you that disrupts your peace. 
This thing is described as sin in the scripture. And the the sin is almost like a a spiritual disease. It's something that lives within you. And it makes you act in rebellious ways, specifically to God. In which you say, through your words and your actions, that you don't want to worship God. You don't want anything to do with God. Now, you might be thinking, no, 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 I've never said that before. I believe in God. I'm a good person. That's not me. But let me paint a picture for you really quick. Is Sin is this rebellious nature in us, and it's the thing that separates us from God. And when we rebel against God, what we do is we may not, you know, say, forget you, God, we want nothing to do with you. What we do is we set up a kingdom in opposition to his kingdom. So remember, if we go back to Jesus, his main message was he came to bring the kingdom of God. And what that means is he wants people to enter into a relationship with God, declare their love and their worship and their loyalty to him, and live as, a, as, <clears throat> as citizens in his kingdom. But that's not what we do. What we do is we get up every single day and we build our little miniature kingdoms. See, our miniature kingdoms is a place that we live and we rule because it's my will. It's what I want. It's what I think. It's what's best for me and for my family. And so our kingdoms are not about his will and what he wants. It's about our will. It's our miniature kingdom. And when we set up these miniature kingdoms and we work our entire lives to build these miniature kingdoms, what we're really doing is we're saying, um, not only do I not want to be a part of your kingdom, God, but I am in direct opposition. Because he says, if you're not for me, you're against me. And so we have declared war against God when we build our miniature kingdoms. See, when we have set up war against God, then we... We can never find the peace that we're looking for. Because whenever we go on vacation, whenever we make money, whenever we think that we have um, increased the health of our family or or their safety, we're never going to find that lasting peace because it's only momentary. Here's how I think of it. Um, I was in youth ministry for a long time, and and it was fun working with high schoolers because um, they're they're hilarious. Especially the girls, they would come in, and there would be a few girls, and every week they would come in and go, such and such is like causing so much drama right now. Like, oh, they're so dramatic. Like, why, like, why is everybody always trying to bring drama in my life right now? And after about three, three weeks of this, I would usually stop them and go, ah, you know, I've noticed something. There's a pattern. Every week you come in and, and somebody has drama with you, right? And you can't figure out why they're such a problem. There is actually a common denominator to this whole thing. It's you. You're a drama queen. Cut it out. Right? The reason why drama keeps coming to you and not anybody else is because you're the problem. The reason why we can't find peace and we constantly have anxiety, even if we take the vacation, even if we make the money, is because the problem is not those things. The problem is within you and I. Because no matter where you go, you're bringing it with you. You are the issue. So Jesus comes along and he says, you know, the problem is that you have declared war against God. And if you have war with God, you will never find peace in your life. You will never find the rest that you're looking for. You will always be anxious. And so every day when you get up and you build that mini kingdom of yours, you're continuing to declare war against God. If you ever want to find the peace that you're looking for, you're going to have to wave that white flag and say, I no longer want to build my kingdom, but I want to build yours. I no longer want to be a citizen in the kingdom of me, but I want to be a citizen in the kingdom of you. And see, what Jesus does is not only does he come and he declares that there is a kingdom, there's this new kingdom and you can be a part of it, but he offers us a way into it. See, any rebellion against the king, there has to be a submission and a peace offering. 
And so we have to admit, you know what, I've been rebellious, and I need to submit to the king, but also justice has to be served. I've, I've been a rebel. And so Jesus says, you know, I'm going to come, and I'm going to pay that penalty for you. If you surrender, I will be the peace offering so that you can have reconciliation with the king. You can be a part of his kingdom. And see, people who call themselves Christians, this is what we do every single day as we get up and we say, okay, God, yesterday was bad. I was building my kingdom. It was all about me. Today, I declare that it's your kingdom that I live for. I want to be a citizen for you, not for me. And yes, it's a struggle, but every day we get a little bit better at it. Every day we continue to try to build his kingdom instead of ours. And some of you guys, you say, ah, you know what? I, I believe in God. I think you need to ultimately just say, you know what? I've been my own kingdom builder and I need to just, I need to stop. Enough is enough. It's your will, not mine. Now, here's the other set of people. Other set of people are like me, in which you would consider yourself a Christ follower, that you want his will and not your own, and yet there is no more peace in your life than before you became a Christian. You don't experience the peace that we're talking about. Theoretically, it sounds really nice, but it's just not happening in your life. I think that... Um, Trust, which is also synonymous with faith in the scriptures, it's this trust that's ultimately going to bring peace. So here's what I mean by this. is If you uh, have employees or coworkers and you work on projects and things, have you ever had one that you just totally trust to get the job done? Like when you give it to them, you know it's as good as done. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about it. I know that when I come and I ask you what has been accomplished or what you, you're, you know that it's going to be done. You don't even think about it any longer. See, this is how God expects our relationship to be with him, in which he goes, you know, I want you to trust me so much that when you give me something, it's done. You don't have anxiety. You don't worry about it. You're at total peace because you trust that I am going to handle whatever you have given me. So the question is, well, let me rewind real quick. Is I got to spend time with my grandpa lately. He was here about a month ago. Um, he's an old, short, round guy, great. And, uh, and he's been walking with the Lord for like 70 years or something crazy like that. And here's what I love about him is when we will be talking about what's happening in my life and what's happening in his life, and, you know, he, he faces um, different health issues, and so does my grandma, and, and there is zero stress on his face about it. He has no anxiety about the whole thing. And I just find it so comforting when I talk to him about things because you're just like, eh, I don't know, God will figure it out. And it's not just him being naive. It's 70 years of him walking with the Lord and the Lord providing and him going, I don't know, he's done it before, he'll do it again. I just go, I want that faith. I don't have that faith, but I want that faith. Because I am a fairly anxious person and I always have been. And so growing up, I would always come to my dad and I would say, Dad, I am really struggling with this anxiety. I cannot find any peace in my life. And he would ask me two questions. First question he asked me is, well, did you do what God asked you to do? And what he meant by this is, look, the scripture gives you clear directives on how you're supposed to live your life, what you're, how you're supposed to treat your, your money and your body and your relationships. And so have you done those things? God asked you to do something. Did you do it? I go, okay, yeah, all right, well, maybe I didn't, maybe I did, I need to go fix that, I'll go work, okay, whatever. And then he would ask me this, he would say, now, have you given it up to God? Have you said, God, this is yours now, I trust you with it, just like a great employee, this is far greater, as I trust you with it, I know you're going to handle it, I know you're going to get it done. So have you trusted God with it? I go, okay, yeah, I've done that. He goes, now, why do you keep trying to take it back then? 
If you gave God, whatever the situation is, whatever the anxiety-provoking thing is in your life, if you gave it to him, why do you keep trying to take it back? You remember when you were little, you'd say, no take-backs? That's like the phrase that I have to continue to use in my life is, okay, God, no take-backs. No take-backs. I don't want to take it back. Because when we try to take back whatever that thing is that we have anxiety over that's ruining our peace, it's us saying to God, God, I don't think you've got this. I don't think you're powerful enough. I think you might be too busy to be thinking about this right now. I don't think you clearly understand the circumstances of what's happening. And so I'm going to go ahead and take this back. I'm going to go ahead and own this again. And it's just telling God, you can't do it, which we know uh, when we think about it is absurd, but that's still what we do. And so here's my question that I want to leave you with. It's two questions. The ones that my dad would ask me all the time. If you have a source of your life that is full of anxiety, it's probably the place in which you're having the hardest time trusting God. And so have you done what he asked you to do? If it's your money, have, have you been a good steward with it? He asked you to give generously. Have you done that? If it's with your health, have you done what you're supposed to? Have you gone to the doctor? Have you done, have you... If it's worth a relationship, have you treated this person like Christ treated you? Okay, if you've done those things, then have you given the rest up to God? Have you trusted him with the outcomes of what's going to take place? And if you have, no take backs. It's something that you may need to preach to yourself throughout this week. As when the fear and the anxiety and the doubt start to come back into your mind about this issue that you've given up to God, you just maybe need to preach to yourself, no take backs, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it because I, I, I don't have a better plan than he does. I don't have more power than he does. I don't know what he knows. And so I'm not going to own that again. And so my prayer for those of us who are in that place right now, where we are full of anxiety and fear and doubt, is that you would walk out of here and you would be able to hand it over to God and he would be able to take it and you would be able to say, no take backs. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you so much for being a God who cares, uh, cares about what's happening in our lives, cares about our circumstances and our relationships and our health. And, and Lord God, we, um, we are constantly grasping for control, sometimes in irrational ways. And Lord God, we know what we are supposed to do, and yet uh, it's oftentimes so difficult to do it. And so Lord God, we want to be good stewards. We want to be people who are responsible, um, people who listen and do what you have asked us to do. And then after that, we want to leave all the results up to you. Instead of trying to take it back, we're going to preach to ourselves this week. That you've got it. You've got it under control. And you're trustworthy. That we know that you're going to take care of us. And so, Lord God, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.